Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Marcus Thomas. And I'm Oz Arshad, and we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help you bridge the gap. Hello and welcome back to the director's take and today we've got a really cool guest. She has worked in the AD department on Gorilla, Tomb Raider and Aladdin. She started making her own short documentaries and shone light on undiscovered talent from marginalised backgrounds which ultimately got featured on BBC3. She has since set up a company called Bluebird Pictures with a focus on more narrative storytelling that will further help marginalised talent and give them a chance to tell stories and challenge the status quo. She's obviously a filmmaker on the rise having success with her short films Greasy Spoon and cycle and now she's landing the role as second block director on the wonderful Dreamy Whilst Black created by Ajani Salmon who stars in it too. She's also currently working as lead director on Queenie from showrunner Candice Carty Williams for Channel 4 so we are very lucky that she's taken the time out from the edit to come and speak to us today which is a Sunday morning. Welcome to the director's take Joelle May David. Thank you so much that was honestly such a nice introduction some stuff that I'd kind of forgotten that I was doing or have done so that was really really sweet um thank you so much um, and also just before we get into it if I move about and stuff and do that it's because I'm in my daughter's room and there's no <laughs> chair in here it's just like a playroom so I'm stood up <laughs> so. it's okay I completely understand like just as we were starting I could hear my daughter crying downstairs in the kitchen with her dad so you know we make do we make do it's all good Joelle we want to like just take it back how did you get into filmmaking and, and what inspired this love of films I always find this a really, really good question for me because film is not something that was always like, I've got to do it, I've got to do this, I've got to make films, I want to be a director. Because it just didn't start off that way from for me. I think I was always creative. I always was a storyteller. So when I was young, I was like always reading books, always trying to write books. I think that was, you know, my first love was reading and then kind of imagining worlds and and writing them um growing up I never had anyone in my family that was in tv and film so I didn't even know what I was doing could be done in tv and film I just had no idea um and then as I got older um you know I I just continued being creative and I think what I ultimately wanted to do was be an artist I wanted to do fine art I wanted to go to art school um that is what I wanted to do um in a in a weird way when I was in sixth form I had my art teachers who were not the nicest people in the world and not very kind of um they weren't like very like they didn't want you to go off and go to art school and stuff like that because we you know we we're from like Newham it's quite underfunded quite you know tough to go to move on from there to go to really good prestigious schools and stuff and it just mm. some teachers were amazing at pushing you to apply for those things and others weren't and my art teachers weren't and I remember I had filled out the application for art school and I just needed a reference from them and they forgot to do it they like literally forgot to do it so the reason I didn't end up going to art school was because of them because I actually okay. <laughs> I actually had 
deferred my university applications hoping to do an art foundation to see if you know really wanted to do that and then you know I had a year of doing that and then could go to university afterwards because at this point again I still wasn't thinking about tv and film and so they didn't do that and it kind of messed me up a little bit because I had no university place that year so I was like I didn't know what to do I was like I was meant to go to art school like I'm like so bad <laughs> it's really bad so it's really bad. bad I was like so sure that I would get in and stuff like that and I was working on my portfolio and they were just so nonchalant about it they was like oh yeah we didn't fill it in because you had paint on the application and I was like that sounds really That's stupid pathetic. you know yeah, we're applying yeah. for art school it was mad so I think I had really good grades as well so it was like really mad to be in a position of having no university place because I was like a straight A student like I got four A's in the end um, but I had no university place so my older sister was already at Southampton University it was still like a top 20 university so I was like I'll just apply here and I was like if it's not art what else is there I want to do so I picked English Lit and Film because I was always writing always creating uh, took English as um, an A-level and then I was like okay film sounds interesting um, I think that could be quite cool as well so I went to university and did that course uh which was all good except that the film was super theory based like it was not film school like I didn't pick up a camera I wasn't taught how to look for jobs afterwards what the different roles were or anything like that so it was a bit like doing English lit but for films so I was just writing about it not doing it um, but in my final year, I did get to do screenwriting. So I left uni, no idea what to do with my degree or how to get in the film industry. I just knew from there that I wanted to be in it. So I just really struggled to find work. Like, I had no idea that nothing is advertised. I really just genuinely had no idea that you couldn't just go onto websites and be like, oh, there's a runner's wow. job. Mm. Oh, there's, I had no idea you couldn't do that. I had no idea that it was all word of mouth. But like, how do you get in in the first place for it yeah. to become word of mouth? My parents couldn't help me. My siblings couldn't help me. No one in my family could help me because they didn't know that industry. So I think I eventually found runners jobs, production assistant jobs. How, how did you get those out of curiosity? There was there was an agency that I joined. Um, and then I think I just kept signing up for loads of like mm. talks, mm. like loads of information talks where they say, you know, there's this traineeship or there's this thing you should apply for but that's the only way I got that information was by going to loads and loads of those things and then once I did do like uh AD and stuff like that I was just like oh yeah I want to be a director okay I can see what what this set works as now I can see what each department does and I want to I want to be at the helm I want to drive the story I want to write my own stuff I want to direct my own stuff so yeah from there I just kind of saved money and taught myself everything after that did i answer your question that was like a really really yeah long yeah, yeah yeah no 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 yeah you did <laughs> yeah i was just just to kind of because you said about the theory thing has that informed your filmmaking mm. at all because it's it's i guess as you're saying like when you get on a set you can learn all of that technical stuff about what everyone does but it's probably a bit more laborious to go back and learn all the theory stuff and the history of it so do you still are you kind of like looking back are you thankful you kind of learned all that stuff yeah, yeah, like it wasn't like uh, a waste of time or anything like that. So definitely is not what I'm trying to say. I think it was just not practical. But the theory does help. Like there's still 
books and stuff that I refer back to when I'm looking at projects now. Um, just kind of knowing different genres, different different ways filmmakers dissected scripts and stuff like that is really helpful. Did you have to use the old Baldwin and Thompson? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Book. I think I still got it. I think I've got it <laughs> yeah. in my office. Yeah. <laughs> Pam Cook, the cinema book, that fun stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely that one. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. And I guess when you're on set and you got to see the director working, what did it look like? Did it seem suddenly, like, easier or simpler? It's really interesting because I think when I did get on set and I saw directors, they weren't running around as much as I imagined they were. They were, like, by the monitors, talking to select people, but it wasn't, like, everyone do you know what I mean because I think in my mind and I think maybe this is a common misconception from people that don't know the industry very well but I think you imagine the director like the first AD Mm. but the first AD is like a different role to the director do you know what I mean so I think I imagined a director more like a first AD so I was like so that kind of almost puts you off a little bit because you don't want to run around shouting at people and worry about timings but then I realized oh no that's someone else's job the director actually gets to make sure they're completing the vision for the day um, and they get to set the look and they get to set, you know, why we're filming in a particular location. They get to work with actors. And yes, it's stressful. And I obviously saw some moments where there's stress, but it was not as running around telling people what to do as I thought it was, which was mm-hmm. did not that part did not appeal to me. Um, but when I saw it wasn't necessarily like that, then I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. You're fully protected on a set, aren't you, just to do the thing. When you get higher up anyway, when you're in shorts, it's it's a fucking free-for-all. But... <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you should get protected. <laughs> you made you know, your first narrative shot, Greasy Spoon, in 2020. Mm-hmm. And, and, and did you do much narrative work ahead of that? Or was it more documentary stuff that you kind of cut your cloth with? Yeah, I definitely did... Um more documentary stuff when I was teaching myself what filmmaking was I think with documentary I kind of bought a camera and just kind of was a bit more run and gun with it and I I just felt at the time you could kind of be like that with documentary and documentary is like one of my favorite forms of visual storytelling because I think you get to work with real people and 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 just sometimes not all the time but sometimes just go out and just do it whereas narrative I never had kind of the money or the connections to do what I really wanted to do. So I had to kind of find a way to like learn how to be a filmmaker uh, without spending too much money that I didn't have. And then when I did have money, do a narrative piece, which is what I really kind of wanted to do. And and I knew that it needed to be kind of my calling card at at that point. Like in 2020, I was turning 30, I think. And I was working as a teacher at the time. And I was working for a film college. So it was like within the realms of like what I did anyway. Mm. But I think in terms of like becoming a full-time director, I was really at this cross path where it was like, I'm either a teacher or a director now because you can't do both of those things full time. Mm. And um, I wasn't a qualified teacher, but you can do this thing where you can work for like a year or two with with the aim to then go and do your PGCE. Right. And the college at the time were quite happy with me, quite happy with the way I taught. Um, I love working with young people. So 
and I never do anything you know like 50% I give 100% to everything where I can so I enjoyed it but it was hard like teaching is very hard and it opened my eyes and I rate a lot of teachers that really do care and give a lot to their jobs but at that time the college was kind of like okay so you've done this for a year we'd really like you to do your PGCE but we'll pay for it because like we like we we like you we like working with you like the way you work with students we will pay for you to do your PGCE um so I would kind of do half the week do studying in the other half of the week teaching but like Mm. as soon as that was said to me I was like wait no I'm a director right this is the first time I was like no I want to I need to go and do what I want to do even if it's like less stable or there's no guarantees of it working out it just like it hit me that if I do this PGCE I'm a teacher mm-hmm. right I'm a teacher and it's fine and like I said I've got huge respect for teachers but I didn't want any regrets so after a couple of months, I think I made Greasy Spoon and like I just knew straight away, like this is the type of filmmaker I want to be. You know, I had a strategy with festivals, stuff like that. And agents started re- reaching out to me. Um, I quit teaching, I think, in October 2020. Um, and I was like, right, I just need to focus on trying to make this happen. But it was scary because it was like, I don't know if what I've got to say or what my style is or what I think Greasy Spoon says is going to get me anywhere. I really have no idea, but I knew that it was a short that was true to myself, true to my voice in a way that I had never done that before. Um, And I felt really proud of it. And I felt like really confident. And I think some of that comes with all the different jobs I did running my company and working with young people and just maturing. And I think I just matured as a filmmaker and was able to take a risk at that time. And then luckily it paid off because I got my agent. This is my, but like I I then found out I was pregnant. So it was like, I was getting all these meetings and these work and which was all over Zoom because it was COVID. Mm. And then, yeah, it just kind of work just came after that. Um, I think I just, my confidence grew um, and people took a chance on me like with dreaming and, and with Queenie and it's just kind of been a bit of a mad mad ride since then very cool wonderful um so wonderful. Uh, what what year did you set up your production company so I'm just intrigued about that was was that way back or was it quite... it was way back yeah. it was way back it was during the times that I was trying to make my own stuff and when I kind of bought my own camera and was teaching myself because I had no idea of the practicalities of filmmaking like I just didn't know I had to teach myself I was on YouTube I learned from people that I connected with through kind of TV and film groups and stuff like that um so it was originally I set it up around 2013 Mm. just to make my own stuff so that's where I made my short documentaries and things like that but I only did that for about a year or two before I realized that I just really had no business running a company Mm. like I didn't know what it was about or the business side of things I was really just doing it to have some autonomy over my work and also to make sure that I wasn't waiting for anyone to give me permission to be a filmmaker. Like I am a filmmaker. I'm going to go and make some pretty shitty stuff, but that's fine because I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of that. And then I kind of left it for a while or left it for a good few, few years. And then 
I restarted it at the end of 2017 because I had just started connecting with my local community in Barking and Dagenham where I where I used to live and I just you know really got on with like the 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 women that run the film office there and they're also kind to me and so like um supportive of what I wanted to do um and I, and before that with my company I'd run some screenings and stuff like that and I was really just trying to get more young people or just more more people from that area interested in TV and film so I'd left it for a while and then restarted it with the aim to do one big event a year to continue doing community outreach. Um, mm-hmm. So we run the film World Cinema Film Festival every year. And then within that, I was like, I've got to make sure that I'm still fulfilling my fulfilling my needs as a filmmaker within the company as well and not mm-hmm. just doing community outreach, which is where we then started doing Greasy Spoon and Cycle and things like that. And it's just kind of, grown since then very very slowly to be honest very Mm. slowly because I always had another job like it didn't pay nothing I always had another job whether it was the teaching whether it was ADing or whatever um and then now because I've had a a really good couple of years directing it really helps cement the company as a talent-led production company and then I've got like four people uh, no three people working for me at the moment um working on the festival we you know we stuck with it it's the sixth year now uh we've got more funding in place we've got more partnerships in place we've got more filmmakers interested and then I think it just helps that I'm a natural working director that's running it as well mm-hmm. that's great because yeah, yeah it's really good. I was going to ask about like how you stayed engaged and stuff during um I guess whilst you're kind of making your way in um, but you mm. kind of answer that, which is cool, because it's it's really difficult and it's, it takes a lot of motivation to do that. And so just to dig into making Greasy Spoon, because it took a while to get to that point. So how, mm. what were your challenges in getting that made, either like mentally or logistically and all these sorts of things? Like It, it was mad. It was, um, so I was, I was actually teaching at the time. So um, even trying to get time off, just having that headache of being like, figuring out a way to be like, I can't work for a couple of days that week when like, it was a brand new college, right? So they needed all hands on deck at all times, which I completely understood. So I was teaching at the time and then I knew I was going to do it under my production company, right? Because I was like, I didn't want to make what I thought was going to be a really great idea and a calling card completely under someone else's company. And also I think just finding funding for short films um, in the UK is really difficult, especially mm. for something that was not it was not conventional what the story that I was telling and the way I wanted to tell it. So I think you had to really understand or believe in it or like magical realism or like nuanced filmmaking or like sci-fi. And I just don't think many short film farms exist to do that. So I was, I think I did apply for a few and got rejected a lot for Greasy Spoon script. Um, And then I think I was at like, like a a film London like breakfast exhibition breakfast because of um the world cinema film festival so nothing to do with filmmaking and I was sitting next to this woman and she was just like oh do you make films as well I was like yeah yeah I do 
and she was like oh you know we've got like um, a short film fund like we we have it's very small but um you could always match what we put in and stuff like that and I was like oh that sounds amazing like what company are you from and it was fully focused um so it was a, a woman called Leah um, and I got in touch with her straight away and I was like I've got this script but I, like, I don't know if it's for you I don't know if you know because I watched some of their stuff on their YouTube cha- channel which is great um, but it's definitely got its audience and I just was mm. like I don't know if this is it this is it but they're like no um you know we really love the script the way it works is to get funding from us you need to come and pitch it in front of a panel of young people I was like oh god okay so uh me and my partner went uh David he was exec producing it so we went and um went into this room and it was like full of young people not not just like a few there was like honestly like 30 18 to 25 year olds there and I was like oh my god and they all had the script printed out in front of them and I was like okay what's happening here that's so cool um it was like mad and then they all read it so they had people playing different parts someone reading the stage directions and it was only eight pages it was only eight pages long and they were really cool that those young people because it was like they got it they totally got what I was trying Mm. to do and um Teddy uh who runs fully focused just said then in there guys do you want to uh fund this or not and they went oh yeah which is amazing and would have been really harsh if they had said no people have spoken like they have spoken but they also had like interesting ideas that was food for thought and stuff like that like Emma who ended up first AD in it she was like you know I almost think we shouldn't say the word gentrification and I think I had one line in there that did Mm. and I was like you're right I shouldn't do that and I took mm. it out and it was like the best thing that she could have offered for yeah. me it was smart because then it was smart that's all the audience is thinking anyway so it's like right. when you say yeah. it it's then like you're then preaching to them you're like this is what my film is about exactly yeah. and in short films you can do that because it's yours yeah. like you have complete autonomy over it and I think when you take that step to tv it's not fully yours anymore mm. so you will get people wanting you to be a bit more expositiony but with short films you don't have to be you you just have to be confident yeah when did you when did you write that script i'm interested in knowing sort of like how you developed your narrative chops from documentary because i've done a documentary it never it never came out but i'd pitch a lot on a feature documentary because of covid and marcus and i both did a documentary at hbo and it is a wonderful format it's a wonderful format you shoot and then you craft the story mm. based on what you've on what you've got, which is the opposite of when you're doing fiction. Mm. So, so what sort of stuff did you do, and and, and what sort of th- things were you like learning as you were doing that about about narrative? And then obviously you then did did the fiction show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think documentary filmmaking is a really good prerequisite to doing narrative storytelling because I think particularly as a director who didn't go to film school and was never taught how to work with actors for example I think working with real people is amazing because I just learned how to communicate in like a very just normal way and and also just kind of learn how to set up what this story is about but also allow it to take its own narrative as well in in documentary and I think with moving on to Greasy Spoon and also just being a narrative filmmaker now is I 
always see working with actors as a collaboration. I really am like a fan of just letting the cameras roll sometimes and picking up things of them being just them and not the character that they are because a lot of amazing stuff I used to get as a documentary filmmaker and we I did this short program called Hidden Talent and it was like no one funded me to do it no one like asked me to do it I was just like I want to spotlight creatives in and around my community that you know are doing amazing stuff that I follow on Instagram that I know friends or friends or whatever and I just want to shine a light on what they're doing and you would kind of get there and it will be artists, it will be business owners, it will be musicians. And you would just, some of it, because they were creatives themselves, you would just let it play out and you'd find the story. Obviously with narrative, the story's written, but sometimes it's not until you get on set that you really fully understand the story and it's, it comes together because it's a collaboration of lots of different people. But particularly with the actors, like I've really had to learn how to direct actors because like I said it was not it was not something that I could really pick up a book and like yeah I can listen to how other people do it or whatever but it's not until you're on set or you're in auditions that you really practice that um I'm lucky that my partner is an actor so I do his self tapes with him and stuff like that so I kind of got some practice there but it's definitely something I, I feel doing documentary helped with yeah, so you, you touched on the difference between shorts and TV. I'm mm-hmm. intrigued to know, how did you get the job on, on Dreaming Mask Black? Like, what was the interview process like? So I had seen the web series, um, and I always thought it was really amazing, really brave, really kind of funny. I love watching comedy, so I was already a fan in that sense. Um, but I had no idea it was becoming a TV show, I think, at the time, my agent at the time, so I had a different agent to begin with. Um, another one of his clients was helping develop um, it into a TV show. Mm. So he sent he sent me the table read. So I, I watched the table read um, and it was really, really funny. Um, that was the pilot episode, actually. Mm. So at the end of 2020, after just quitting my job, that was my first meeting as a director for hire. Um, and I met with a Johnny and Big Deal on Zoom because we were also in a pandemic. Yeah. So it was all over Zoom. Um, so I met with them for the pilot and it was a really lovely conversation, lots of laughs. Um, I think I was two or three months pregnant then. And so you, they had no idea because you can only see my face. I remember feeling really sick during yeah. the um, meeting, actually. But nevertheless, I didn't get the pilot and they went with someone with a little bit more experience, which was Seb. And I think Seb was... Sebastian Till, right? Exactly. And I think he was totally the right person for that pilot episode. So um, there was no hard feelings and it was fine. But what that meant was because I had that initial rapport with them, that meeting with them that I did think went well, when it was picked up as as a series, it came back around to me. I had a new agent then, but it still kind of landed um, with me and I got to read the full scripts um, and I really loved them. And there were episode four in there particularly that I was like, if I get this, I really want to do episode four because of what it deals with. Mm. Um, And being pregnant at the time, I was like, well, had I had my, I think I might have had my daughter by then Um, because it was like, it took like a year or two for it to get picked up. So I had my daughter by then. So I had definitely related to the content of 
that episode. And I had also by then done a non-TX pilot for Channel 4. So I had a little bit more under my belt, even though it didn't TX, it was like a full 20 minute, 20 minute kind of teaser of a comedy show um, that I worked on. Mm. So they kind of had more to go by. And just for the audience, could you say what TX is? So it's just, it basically means it doesn't transmit yet. So it doesn't go out. So it's like you you do, it happens all the time. So um, they might fund a writer or production company to do a pilot, um, to just test the waters of the idea that has been presented to them. So they kind of like it, but they want to see if it works first. They don't want to say, yeah, um, we'll do a pilot and it will go out and we'll see what the world thinks. It's like, no, we want to see what we yeah. think first. That basically is what it means. You would do the full pilot, but it would just never get transmitted. So what was the first thing you did when you got the job? Obviously, you get given the scripts and then and then where do you go from there? In fact, how did you even find out? Like, what was that moment like? Um, How did I find out? I mean, my agent always calls me. So she never emails me when I get a job. She always calls me. So if I see her <laughs> ringing, I'm like, is it good news or bad news? Because she'll always tell me generally on the phone if I've got a job or not. So I'm like, OK, it's one of one of the two. Right. So she called me and yeah, very pleased. I think my daughter hadn't even turned one yet so I think I did the non-TX pilot in February when my daughter was six months old and then I think I got the news for dreaming in maybe like June so she wasn't one yet she turned one in August so yeah I was just super excited to just get started I mean I think my process of how to prepare for a show really depends on if I'm doing block two or lead directing because they differ because it differed quite a lot between dreaming and queenie in terms of my process because with dreaming a lot of the look has already been set by someone else um but that doesn't mean I, I shouldn't be doing my own script analysis of the whole series so that I know where these characters have been and I know where they're going to go beyond my episodes so I need to know that and I need to you know have those character breakdowns I generally write ones myself so I'll look at my episodes and write character breakdowns for myself based on what is just on the page and then um, I'll let the writer fill in the blanks or for us to discuss about more in depth about these characters but I always kind of start from a place of my own understanding um, because I need to know is there something missing in this script because I didn't get it or I didn't see it? Or is there um, something I've misunderstood just based on what I've read? And that normally is something in pre-production that directors and writers do collaborate on, looking at scripts and breaking them down and kind of presenting how you'd like to shoot it and asking questions about characters or, you know, finding things out that you need to know that will help your episodes my episodes were also like in the middle of the series. So it was kind of like four and five. So there's three episodes of Gone and then there's an episode afterwards. So you have to be like also conscious of bouncing off the style that's already been set. But then my episodes, I would say, are a bit more dramatic Mm. than the other episodes. So it's like it left me a little bit of room to add a little bit more of my style in. Very, very, very interesting experience for my first um, TV show. So, so when you when you broke those 
scripts down, Joel. Did you mm. like do the arcs as well? And then and then you said that you did your own sort of like work on the entire series. So you would have obviously had access to the scripts. Mm. Um, can you just talk us a little bit about that process about what you actually do? As in, like, do you chart them? And do you think right? This is where they're coming in, exiting scene, exit, starting the episode, exiting the episode. How do you do that so that you're fully prepped when you get on set? Yeah. So. What, it's probably easier to talk about what I did on Queenie because I was lead director. So it was just, I had four episodes, the first four episodes. And this is what I generally am doing on each project is I'll get the scripts and I'll just start my script analysis straight away, even though they're not locked scripts. Um, I think you still are going to end up having script meetings with the writer. So you need to go in there kind of, having dissected what's happening in each episode, any questions you have, anything you're confused about, any ideas you have around how to, what that location might look like or what what your vision is. You need to start building your vision as soon as you get the scripts and as soon as you've been told you've got the job. If you're lead director, I think you could do a bit of it as block two or three director as well, but definitely as lead director, it's like your vision. You are working with the writer all the time. Um, to set the look and to the tone of the show. So I would do that. And then I would do character profiles for every character that's in my episodes. So I would write out who they are uh, based on just what I've read, who they are, what they do, how they come across, how their performance might be, all that kind of stuff. And then eventually I would get the character breakdowns from the writer or have really in-depth discussions with the writer about who those characters are and often if it's if it's written in a way that's fully understandable we'll be on the same page but sometimes we're not or sometimes there's things the writers know about that character in their past or their future Mm. that that affects why they're behaving in certain ways in the place that you've met them in this script right so it's really important for me to have my own understanding and then have the input of the writer because I just want to know what I think from just reading these and then the next thing I'll do is I'll start mapping out a really long document like a really long deck which covers my entire vision it's a live document so it's constantly updating so I would be looking at cameras lighting costume characters makeup what I think like listing every single location that comes up in my block what I think it will look like why it will look like that um color palettes everything it's just a full document um which is mostly good to share at the beginning of a project with producers execs showrunners writers and that's probably before we get any HODs on board um so if I am part of the hiring process of HODs we've all we all understand what my vision is, right? So then when we have those meetings with HODs, we're like, oh yeah, they're like completely on board with Joel's vision or they're offering something that's not the same, but like it's, it makes me like, oh, that's really food for thought. I'm I'm actually going to rip this up and hire that person because they've got like an amazing mm. um, view of their department and how that would help the story. So that document like before we before we've even like hired anyone it's honestly about 50 or 60 pages and then once we hire people I start adding in their ideas collaborating and I think for Queenie it ended up being like 120 pages but it's just it was it I like to work like that because it's like just a manual mm. like a visual manual of 
what I am setting out to do. But it's not to say that that won't change as we progress or it might change when we can't get the locations that I've envisioned or we can't do everything that I want because it's also a showrunner's vision, right? Mm. So it's like they they get an input as well. They get a huge input actually. So it's for me to always know what I'm set out to do. And I think as a director, and this is like lead director, second director, you are asked questions all the time, like all the time. And I just always want to like, maybe not have the right answer, but I've thought about it. I've generally thought about most things that are going to be asked, even if it's not, you know, what will eventually happen or the showrunner might have a different idea, but I have ideas too. I just want to always make sure that, I do have ideas, whether they get used or not is another story, but I have them, you know? Do you, do you know when you're doing your, 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 when you're doing this document, this visual document that's, that, in, that mm. encapsulates everything that you've got in your vision, do you also go down into scenes as well? As in like, you know, there's a specific scene or a sequence and it's like, you know, I want this to feel like this. Do you, do you, do you break it down to that granular level as well? Sometimes if there's a scene or scenes in the scripts that feel like it needs that because they can go a lot of different directions visually or performance wise or location or whatever, then yeah, some of them I will do scene by scene for sure. We're going to, we're going to break down in a second about how you did Dreaming Whilst Black on set, but I'm curious to find just, just, just where your head was at because you did Greasy Spoon, right? Mm. And Greasy Spoon's got a certain way how you covered it, a certain mm. way it's coverage. But obviously, you're going into a machine now where mm-hmm. there's an actual machine taking place. What was your sort of like mentality going into that? I think like was a trepidation. I, I, it's not a show anymore where I'm in control of everything. Mm. And mm. I'm going into a machine that's got a really rigid way of working as well. Yeah, like I would be lying if I if I would say there wasn't any trepidation. There, there definitely was. Um, and I think... I learned quite quickly how important coverage is in mm. TV. And I think when you're doing your own shorts and you do have that autonomy over it, I think you can be a bit more stylistic. You can be a bit more like, I want to shoot profiles of everyone, but that's just what this short needs or whatever. But when you get into TV, you really have to think about the edit when you're shooting because it's like, oh yeah, you can have this special shot, but you need to have the coverage as well because in case that special shot is not liked by everyone. You just have to think about so many more voices. And I definitely did learn that on Dreaming. And I think I also, luckily I had done the non-TX pilot, which was straight comedy. And I had learned from that, that that in TV land, I wouldn't say there's a way to shoot comedy because I don't believe there's one way to do anything. But I think there's a way that, TV execs want you to do comedy, which is they're so conscious of jokes not landing. They want to be able to rewrite in the edit if they want to or have to, right? So you are shooting a lot of coverage in terms of getting singles on everyone because if the joke doesn't work, well, then maybe the reaction is funny. Do you know what I mean? So they can rewrite it in the edit. And I think that's what I learned on Dreaming. Even though my episodes lent more into drama I think the comedy that was there like there was definitely the pressure of like but make sure you land the comedy even though your episodes do have a bit more serious stuff in it they're still jokes this is still a comedy show you still need to make sure you land that as well so that was kind of on my head a little bit 
going on to say. There's, the, there's that bit in the uh, restaurant, isn't there, when he's on about that song in the arse or whatever. And then <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the joke's actually on the reaction of the patrons that are in the shop. Exactly, because, you know, like on paper, you, you read it and you're like, oh, the joke is like he's singing like something so ridiculous, right? But when you get to it, I'm like, how re- ridiculous can he do it? So it's like it is Krabbener's face and it is the customer's face that I like what the joke is. So it's mm. like, if you miss that on the day, then what are we going to do in the edit? Then it means we, you know, we might not be able to use it or that joke doesn't land at all. So I also think like two cameras help with comedy a lot, even though lots of people want to do one camera, which I completely understand. It's more a style thing, but my God, do you need to sweep up everybody's reactions in comedy? Wasn't Jamie Mars Black single camera though? It was mostly single camera, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> um, I was going to say. It was mostly single camera. I think we had a handful of second camera days just on days where the schedule was really tough. Okay. Um, but it was mostly single camera. So it's easier with two to get everyone's reaction. But when it's single, you just have to work more quickly. So, yeah, there's there's lots of there's lots to unpack here. So with the, the process of constructing sequences, um, just mm. in general, like when you're thinking about them, imagining what you're going to do, are you having to like pitch them to uh, the producers or say Ajani when you're a second block director? And were there mm. any sort of times where you kind of saw something in, well, in the script which didn't quite work or you thought of a way of elevating it mm. and you shifted the story a bit? Did that ever happen? And it'll be interesting to hear the contrast between being like a second block director and lead director as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to speak to your showrunner or your writer as much as you can in pre-production, to be honest, because you don't want to get on set and actually you've both been on different pages the whole time. I mm. think um, as much as you can, reach out to them, uh, talk to them, meet with them, sit down with them, analyse the script with them. I think, you know, there was definitely certain things I wanted to do particularly like with the hospital I wanted to be a little bit more handheld when the fight broke out um I wanted moments of stillness as well I wanted a bit more camera movement which is not really what is in episodes one to three Mm. because I just I couldn't shoot it like comedy because it wasn't comedy right so I just kind of I went for it and I think my DP like loved it. I think Ajani was on board because I think he always knew that episode four was like that. And so it was like, it, it gave me a little bit more freedom to do a bit more. So that was great. Um, and then what was the last part of the question? Sorry. Um, yeah. Like did things ever shift from the script and also like the difference between being second block and lead block director in, in how you uh, yeah like were able to shift or collaborate with, with people to get your ideas across. Yeah. I mean, look, look, things change um, on set all the time. Like it, it really does. I think something that we did. So in episode five, when he's at the right, right at the beginning where he's at the unchanged voices, um, pitch and they're like sitting in a circle Mm -hmm. so there was meant to be that scene where they share their pitches and then um it was and the next scene was i think the first part sorry was her just introducing the scheme and then it was a new scene where they were sat around tables in groups doing it 
And I remember AK, who played William, just started running into the next scene by accident. And then I was like, do you know what? Why are we even going into another scene? Let's just combine it. We also like are in a crazy schedule. Um, so I was like, let's just roll with it. Um, Ali, who was the other writer on Dreaming What's Back, was on set as well. So I think if you're ever going to run scenes together or change lines dramatically or the order of things like having the writer nearby is helpful because I'm like can we you know just do this instead and he was like yeah cool I think that works um obviously Johnny was the lead actor as well as the writer so he was always there so you could always ask him so we did that as well and it saved a lot of time on a really really crazy day and I think it just worked better anyway it like Mm. it flowed we were in in the the moment of sharing pictures and stuff so let's just go for it and then yeah there was definitely other times where you would just kind of collaborate with the writers then and there on set the difference between lead the lead and second block um like with you with your flexibility I guess yeah yeah I think I think look as the second director you don't have as much flexibility because the lead director has been the one that has set the look and the tone of the show and I think you have to think about what are your episodes saying in the grand scheme of the story and how different is it how much has it moved on from what the first director has done Mm. Um, so how much leeway is there to kind of do something a little bit different whilst still honoring the look and feel of the show Um, I think in Dreaming I was able to do that because we went to a different narrative, a different storyline, a more dramatic storyline in four and a little bit in five as well. But generally I kept the same look and tone of the show. And, you know, sometimes on projects, the lead director will do like the first block and the third block and then the second director will do the one in the middle. So you do have to think about who's taking over for this and, and, you know, I can't, go so much out of the story doing my own thing mm. that this doesn't look like the same show anymore or feel like the same show anymore um and then obviously with lead director you just you have more pressure uh you are in pre-production probably for longer and you are really and truly setting the look and tone of the show that you will need to hand over to someone else and you'll have to hand it over to them. Like there were certain ways that we shot this person. The reason was this, blah, blah, blah. And then that person should also be receiving your rushes, should be receiving your assembly edits during the shoot. So they should be looking, asking questions as and when they can. And then hopefully, you know, doing what you set again with the caveat that, you know, looking at the story for themselves as well and being like, there's a little bit of room to do a little bit of my own thing here. But you can't take people completely out of the story mm. on the second block, trying to do your own thing. I think you just have so, to be wary of that. So, Joel, right? You know, you, you just spoke about, like, if, you, if you're coming into the second block, you've got to match the tone. Now, Marcus and I did an episode last week about, you know, what tone actually is, because it's one of those things that's quite ambiguous, you know, it's mm. quite broad. So what work are you doing beforehand to actually understand the tone of something that's already been set? What what are you making notes? Are you uh, references that are on there? What are you doing to get the tone in your bones so that when you step back out to do the thing, you're not going to tread too far away from what's set? Yeah, look, I think you need to be talking to the lead director, you know? I don't think you should be going in being like, this is just my block, I don't need to talk to 
the other director. I think you need to be all about collaboration. Um, I think you need to understand what they're doing. Um, I think if you can visit set uh, during block one to see how um, things are set, how things are looked, you need to be looking at the rushes that come through. You need to be looking at the assemblies. You still need to try and have communication with the showrunner, whether they're starring in it or are on set. Um, you know, the tone comes as much from what the showrunner wants out of the show as it does the director. So you need to be in communication with people all the time. And I think it needs to be on you a little bit more than those that are working, because as you know, once you're on set filming, it's crazy. So whatever, you, so those people, once they're filming, aren't necessarily going to be able to uh, remember to send you things or whatever but you just need to ask they will do it you just need to ask so I think it's just on you as the second director to gather that information up and make sure you're always in the loop still yeah tone is is a funny one because I also think it can change in the edit right it can change so much in the edit tone can change in the edit pace can uh, change in the edit you can go from like I want this comedy to be really naturalistic to in the edit we're going to cut around all that space all that air we're not gonna yeah really great that you were on that shot and got that look but we don't need it we're gonna cut it so I think you also always need to think about the edit and what you think you'll need for the edit for the tone in which you think you are making um I say that because I'm in the edit right now and you know things move a lot and change a lot from shooting to edit all I would say as well is that when you are shooting, yes, it's important in some respects to wrap on time for the channels and the producers. But if you're wrapping on time and not getting everything you need from the edit just to prove you can wrap on time, then you are just moving a problem to the edit. Mm. So that's also a, a thing that you have to contend with a lot. Yeah. And and with that in mind, so I'm not sure sure whether I'll put this in. I'll probably have to check the NDA. But I actually interviewed for Jimmy Wars Black, and I know the point where I fell down in the interview. Uh, it was for the lead block. The point where I fell down was when I asked them how long they had to shoot it, and they was like, "Oh, five days." I'd been given a 34 page script to to read, and that's what I was going to mm -hmm. shoot. And I was like, "I was like, okay, so how many cameras is it?" And I was like, "One." <laughs> and then there was like, "Okay, so is it going to be handheld?" I was like, "No, I want it to be like like Atlanta." I was like. I don't know if that's possible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'd like to hear from you, like, how did you deal with the schedule? How did you go about it? How did you prep? How did you kind of accommodate with your shot list and things like this? Like, how did you execute it within that time? And, and what were the challenges you faced in kind of getting things done? Yeah. Um, well, the, the scripts had to be shortened. Mm. First and foremost, the scripts had to be shortened. The scripts did eventually get much less, I think maybe around 27 pages, mm. I think, um, especially as, like I said, you have to think about the edit and like how long is this show going to end up being? So the, the scripts did get shortened and it's something they were working on in prep, like a lot to to get right. And then, and it, it's, it's tough to say this, but I think once I actually got to set and I'd seen the first block struggle with meeting everything on schedule and stuff like that is that I had to think of a way that I could get through the day getting what is needed for the edit and then also getting some stuff that I wanted so I just had to prioritize coverage at the top of every scene and then I would always have a special shot 
at the end. So like if we have time, we get the special shot. And it's it's frustrating to say as a director because like you want your special shots in there. But if you don't have the scene, you don't have the scene, right? And that's where coverage does come into play in TV a lot. So it was kind of that balance that I had, but me and my DP, Natalie, that's how we kind of attacked every day. Like she would get my shot list, we'd go for our shot list and we'd be like, this is the scene here. This is what we want to do. So we get the scene, we do what we want to do. Um, And it happened on a few occasions that we managed to do that, not all the time. And I think also, you know, we had uh, a couple of set builds on Dreaming, which helped because we weren't traveling in between places too much. We had, um, everything was close by, so we were able to go there. Um, for me also, I I never go to my trailer. Um, mm. I go to, I get to set like an hour, hour and a half early. And it's normally like me and the security guards, breakfast isn't even open yet. I'll go on to set and I'll just like sit in it. I'll just sit in it and I'll think about it um, and I'll look at my shot list because you could do all the planning in the world and then you get to the day and it's not quite what you imagined or things go wrong. And I just need to sit with my thoughts at the beginning of the day um, without anyone else really there. And then my DP would tend to arrive afterwards and we'd go through what we had planned or what changes we might do or, oh, like we don't have enough time to do this. How are we going to do it? So that's kind of my process in it. I don't want to work every job where it's coverage and then special shot, but I think sometimes when you have such a tough schedule, it just is that way. You, you know, you're saying that you had like these. This is the scene. Mm-hmm. These setups here are the scene, and then these are the special ones. Mm-hmm. But when you say that these are the special ones, like obviously turnover, turning round, and all of that business takes time with all mm-hmm. the crew moving. So, did your special shots? Did you try and encompass them? on the same line if you were shooting a, a, you know, a particular thing? Mm-hmm. Is that how you do it? So we've got three shots that are on this um, s- setup and we've got a special one if we can squeeze it in on this as well. Is that how you do it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Like if 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 I can, if I can uh, swing a lens to a nicer lens because this moment is special, I think that happened a bit more on Queenie than on Dreaming, um, then we'll do it. Uh, but it tend it would normally working with my DP, we would kind of choose where that could come into play. Um, but yeah, it would it would tend to kind of fold into what we're already shooting. I think that's cool. Wonderful, um, wonderful. And um, another thing they said in the interview uh, was because <laughs> uh, I think it's important with the coverage thing is mm. with comedy especially. It's so important. Comedy is like ninety percent timing and a lot of that is what you do in the edit. So that's why the coverage mm. is so important. Mm. But one of the questions in the interview was like, how do you find the funny? But I'm intrigued to know, like from your perspective, having worked on it and and yeah, and done other comedies, how did you find the funny in Dreaming Whilst Black whilst you're on set? Yeah, look, so much of it is, like you said, it's the timing, it's the way it's said, it's the performance. It's like, it's not just the performance in how it's said, it's like, it's the whole thing. Do you know what I mean? It's the blocking even that helps. So for me, it was like every day looking at the scenes that I'm doing and be like highlighting what the joke is. Like, do I understand what the joke is, first of all? Um, so I can't go in and direct a scene, particularly for comedy, if I've missed where the joke is. And if I don't know where the joke is, then I, you, you better go and ask because you don't want to start rolling and you're not 
landing it or you're not prioritizing a close-up or a wide shot where you need to um I think comedy often lands in a wide if I'm being honest because it's like set up set up reveal set up set up reveal right so it's kind of having that understanding of where the joke is and how to set it up and then like I said yeah so much of it is the reactions because a lot of the time spent in the edit is time rewriting jokes to be honest so yeah I think I think you've just kind of got to know what is supposed to be the joke before you go in and then and then working with your actors on performance as well I think you'll be you're you're often lucky most people that do comedy acting wise tend to do it more than once and they kind of they know where the funny is as well but you Mm. still gotta maybe nurture how it's delivered a little bit more I can't remember if it was your episode, but the the, the suck your mum episode um, was, was that was that Kobe. That was three. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was three. Yeah, yeah. It, you know what? It felt like the end of that was it became like improvisational, where they were just kind of. Mm. It just felt like each person was just like throwing gas on the fire, and like that. It's just when a group of guys in a room together and just gassing each other up to get more and more and ang- more and more angry. And, and I love I love improv, by the way. Yeah. I, I I think improv in, and comedy go hand in hand. I think your script supervisor will hate you, but that's okay. Um, I've always kind of had this attitude of like, say what's on the page, but but so that we've got what's on the page, but you can say anything around it right yeah that yeah. that's funny or you can jump off it or you can ad lib and and yeah I just love improv because I think you get like the most natural responses from actors that yeah. you're ever gonna get is is that mm. something you got you you improvise moments on your episode like you you kind of got the thing on the page first and then you kind of went off a little bit or was it push for time I, I can't I can't remember on on dreaming I think I think we were a bit too pushed for time for it. I think like someone like Demi is really good at improv because mm. I've just worked with him again and he's really good at improv. And I think sometimes working with actors that you've worked with before, you know their strengths really well. So I didn't do as much of it on Dreaming because the schedule was so mad, but it's definitely something that I always encourage actors to do if we can. If we've got the time, we'll do it. And you'd have to obviously square that with a showrunner if you're doing improv. Yeah, yeah. You need you need to make sure that, you know, the writer, the showrunner is on board with improv because some really want you to say what's on the page word for word. And then sometimes it's just particular moments or particular characters or particular scenes they want word for word because that's this that's for them driving the story forward. So, you know, showrunners tend to be on set anyway, so you always square it with them. But most that worked with so far have been like cool with improv at the right times mm. in the right moments and um, it wouldn't be for every scene but generally they're cool with it that's an important note I mean personally I I do that I tried to get what's on the page first as a safety and then you kind of just allow actors to let them bring whatever they're going to bring or explore mm-hmm. moments and just kind of take it further and further but exactly. also yeah like you need to make time in the schedule for that to happen as well and also some actors sometimes you you might think oh improvisation great I'm, I like improvisation is going to make it all happen and then you get there and you just tell the actor okay so improvise some actors can't do improvisation like it's some they people don't are like good at it. it yeah it's, yeah, it's no, so no. much pressure because what does that even mean like okay improvise some don't if you're going to do it you need to motivate them with something like a note or something 
Yeah. You need to give them information around the improvisation. You can't just be like, okay, now just improvise this. Like you gotta be like, you gotta set it up for them. And it's kind of like, okay, these people, they always riff with each other or they've got this in common or this history or whatever. Or you know what, can you improvise this based on what happened in the last scene? Because you just this just funny thing just happened to you. I want you to sit and talk about it now. Um, which is more helpful than just improvise and also being conscious that not every actor is good at it or comfortable with it. So it's like a fine balance between, yes, ask the showrunner, but also ask your actors. Yeah. Joel, I'm I'm really interested because obviously now that we've got to know you a little bit, what what sort of comedies do you like? What what have you sort of like, you know, grown up that you think, yeah, man, that's that, that's the type of for me and Marcus, we love The Office. That that's mm. one of the things we bonded on when we were on House of the Dragon yeah. was The Office. But uh what, what what sort of stuff do you like? You know, I watch a lot of American TV shows, if I'm being completely honest. Um, so yes, The Office. Um, my younger sister watched a lot of the American version, so I ended up watching a lot of that. Um, I like naturalistic comedies, comedies that are a little bit more offbeat. I like Atlanta, Insecure, which are more drama, but they have Mm. comedy elements in it. I think all drama should have some comedy elements in it, to be honest, Mm. Um, because it's just more reflective of real life. What else? I think I mostly watch comedy and documentaries, if I'm being honest. Mm. Uh, I loved Abbott Elementary when I watched it. Mm. I thought that was really, really amazing writing. Yeah, it is great. It's so good. I think I just like anything that's a bit weird and wonderful. That's like comedy with something else. Like if it's mm. like a a horror or a sci-fi or a drama that has comedy in it, I'll I'll be watching. And um uh with with dreaming, were you involved in the edit for the show? And how much time did you get per episode to to edit? Um, and was there a point where you kind of delivered your cut and you stepped off and you allowed the showrunner or lead directors to finish it off? Yeah, with Dreaming, it was a bit difficult because I only had, a, I had like five days per episode to do a cut and then it would go basically to the showrunners, which I did do. And then I was supposed to come back for the grade. I ended up not coming back from the grade because it crossed over with me starting Queenie. Um, so I, so January was like edit for dreaming, but then Queenie pre-production started in January as well. So there was a bit like of a crossover where I had to leave. Um, but I think, I think because Ajani was so involved on dreaming, like it's his baby. He is, you know, from his conception as a writer with the web series, um, he's a director himself. He, uh, wrote it starred in it show ran it it was his baby so yes I did get my input most of episode five is most of what I had edited actually it wasn't too different but beyond that it was him and the networks him and the networks him and the networks but by then I was like onto another job anyway which happens sometimes wicked I think I think what we're going to do is because we had a couple of questions for Queen here. What I think we're going to do is because you're great, we want to get you on again. <laughs> oh, thank you. And so and sweet. grill you about that when that's out. Of course, out, of course. And not talk about that. But what we did want to talk to you about is, um, you know, we were talking about obviously I'm in my daughter's room and you you heard your daughter earlier on. <laughs> so you know, alongside like you know films and TV, you know, you are also a mum, mm. um, and it's an important thing to to cover. We get a lot of questions about people. How do you balance? 
this industry that's not conducive to families, it's not mm. conducive to marriage, it's not conducive mm-hmm. to any normality, really. Mm. How do you balance it? Oh, God, it's mad, isn't it? Um, it was really difficult. It still is difficult, if I'm being honest. Um, when I was pregnant with my daughter, and she was born in August 2021, I landed a pilot for Channel 4 um, when I was about six months pregnant. And it was like, the, it was like kind of still COVID times at, at that mm. time. And... I remember getting that job and then not being able to do it because I was too pregnant because they had to move the dates mm. to very close to when I was due. Um, and we tried to get them to not move it and stuff. And there was all these things as to why they had to. And then so that that was my first job I lost because I was pregnant, because I was about to become a mum. And it just really opened my eyes to that. I thought it was tough as a woman. It's tougher as a mum. So I have my daughter and then eight weeks later shot cycle and then I remember speaking to my agent at the time and she was like you know we need to talk about maternity leave like what do you want to do and I was like well like if I take maternity leave I got I got no money you know I've got like I there's no pot of funding for women taking maternity leave in the tv and film industry so my partner's an actor so he is always auditioning he auditions more than he gets jobs which is like normal Right. So like if I also I'm on maternity leave and not making money, what do we do? Mm. So we kind of left it hanging in the air a little bit. I just kind of continued working and then took it in turns with my partner to look after my daughter. He had a job for six months in Italy. And then when that ended, I started prep for Dreaming Whites Black. So it all kind of worked out in us turns. Yeah. But it's difficult because it, that won't happen all the time. Like one day we're going to get jobs at the same time and we won't know what to do. We just haven't, we don't really know what to do. Like she's in nursery um, and her nursery is quite good because it's open 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. She's never been in that long, but mm. it's it's good to know she could be. Yeah. Um, but that's still even not enough time if yeah. I was on set, right? Say yeah. if he was on set and I was on set and I'm getting picked up at 6 a.m. and I'm getting home at 8 p.m., that's still longer than a 12-hour day at her nursery. Mm. So you would still need help um, to pick her up and drop her off. Um, at nursery it's just so hard it is so hard it's not just hard because of like who takes care of her when you're working it's hard because I want to be with her like I want to be with her and I work in a job where everything is telling you no this is your baby now (laughs) you you have a baby but this is your baby now you need to put Mm. everything into this and I I find it difficult I think I think I'm lucky that my partner was, has been in the industry longer than I am. And he was very much like, now's your time for like the first year. So he was at home with her when I was working and he didn't audition. He just didn't mm-hmm. audition to make wow. sure that he wasn't going to get a job that clashed with me setting myself up as a director. And I have family and friends and people that are really supportive and who my daughter loves spending time with. But the hardest part is that I'm not spending the time with her that I want to. And, you know, even when you're on set and, you know, thing people without kids don't realise, but, you know, every time we go into overtime and things like that, and I'm saying, yeah, we need to go into overtime to get these shots and stuff like that. I'm saying to myself, I'm doing this overtime. I'm not seeing my daughter, you know, Mm. like I'm saying, 
this, I need to get these shots um, or see my daughter. And the, the shots often win because you you know that time is money and you're not going to be able to do that again. All I would say is the industry is not equipped for parents, for mums in particular. And we have such a long way to go. And the only way for me to manage that is to, so I finished the edit that I'm on, the show I'm on now in the second week of September. So I'm then taking the rest of the year off Mm. because yes, I love my job, but I love my child more. Mm. And I think we have to create our own boundaries because the industry isn't ready to do those boundaries yet. It's just not. So we have to create our own boundaries. If during prep, you say you can't start work until 10 a.m. because you've got to take your daughter to nursery, then you you know, you need to make sure people know that that's the reason and you, you finish at 10 a.m. and by 6 p.m. you're done. Um, between, I often say if I'm working from home, between 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. is my time for my daughter. Um, and that should be uninterrupted time. I will email you back, but it'll be after she goes to bed, Mm. you know? And I think you just have to create those boundaries for yourself and for your children um, because the industry is not going to do it for you. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think that's really important saying like with your, with your uh, partner, like having to take a year off just because Mm. you can't facilitate working and, and a child like yeah. it, that shouldn't even be the thing like you should still mm-hmm. you shouldn't have to like not be able to support yourselves in the way that you 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 want to just because the industry which you both happen to work in like isn't fit for purpose basically to it's not conducive to another life and yeah like the mentors that we had on on house of the dragon like one of them was just like he one of the things he said to me was that like this industry just eats families because mm-hmm. um unless you find a way to incorporate the two and bring them along for the ride, like there'll be times on big jobs you're away. I mean, House of the Dragon shot over 10 months and like they came over from LA to shoot here and they kind of, most of their family was away and they away from their kids and stuff. And it's just like, what do you do? Like, what do you do? You only mm. get a certain amount of comp tickets to kind of go back here and there. Um, mm. But yeah, you're kind of like missing all, all of this sort of uh, time. I'm a hypocrite saying this. But it, it, it even kind of like disgusts me saying it, but you, you're not going to get those times back with your kids. Because mm. I've missed a chunk of it. Mm. I was, you know, when we were in House of Dragon, I was there for a year and a half. Mm. You know, and it wasn't even a thing of just coming home at weekends. It wasn't easy as that. Because if I'm writing and I needed to write, I couldn't use 10 hours of a 48-hour weekend to travel on the M62. Mm. And, you know, it was... It is it is mad. How, how much the industry sucks out of you to get... To get in it is, you know, it's it's insane. It's mm-hmm. insane. You you have to operate at a level that's just yeah yeah. It's, it's it's not conducive to it. You'll feel guilty on both sides sometimes. Like you'll yeah. feel guilty mm-hmm. for not giving a hundred percent to the job and not giving a hundred percent to your child. Your one is always getting slightly more than the other. Like the job's getting seventy percent this week and she's getting thirty. Or okay, mm-hmm. this week I'm saying put my boundaries in place she's getting 70 percent. you're getting 30 but mm. it's difficult because especially you know you're if you're right a director so much of the vision and and stuff is on on your head mm. and you're doing a good job but sometimes you're like I could do even more if I didn't have as many responsibilities outside of work but you know mm. 
it it's the way it is it's yeah. you know i just it's like you said you're not going to get that time back with your kids and uh it's not it's not for, for families this industry is not for families it's not really for like married people it's not people no. for it's not for people who ha- who are carers it's not for people who don't have um you know uh money elsewhere coming from elsewhere to support you it's just not conducive to a lot of people Mm. um and i know i know there's been a history of women leaving the industry in their droves when they become mothers because it's all well and good saying i can do it all and then you get to it and you're like no i can't and it there is no shame in in saying that and you often find that women will leave um and then try and come back and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and needs to be more support for women returning to work after after having kids mm. or after spending time raising kids. And they're just <laughs> they're just there just isn't. And it has to happen like in every production company or, you know, I think it, these things need to be a part of uh, the fabric of how we run shows and make shows. And until it is, it's going to be left behind, isn't it? Because they want they just want people that are able to give give them a hundred percent. And I don't think anyone really and truly can or should give their job a hundred percent of themselves. Mm. You need to have happiness and fulfillment beyond your job. Mm. I think that's very, very, very important. Um beyond this, what would what does the future look like for you? And is there any sort of final advice that you'd like to to throw out to the audience? Yeah, beyond this, um, Finding a balance between work and home life is top of my agenda. Um, I have been working back-to-back shows since like last August. So I finish the edit soon, the rest of the year off. Within that time, spend more time with my family, with my daughter, go back to maybe writing some stuff and and developing stuff with um, my company. We've got our writer in residence at the moment and kind of just work at a bit of a slower pace between October and the end of the year. That is definitely top of my list. Um, But then also ultimately developing my own slate with Bluebird Pictures. Like I said, we want to be, we are a talent-led production company. Um, I'll continue to uh, want to work on other things, but I also think we've got some ideas. Um, and some scripts and stuff like that that we want to develop and take time with. Um, And then advice, I think it just goes back to the conversation we're having about parenthood and stuff like that. And and it's just making sure um, you have other things in your life that bring you happiness and it's not just this industry because I think, I I know it sounds cliche, but you will hear a lot of no's. and, And if you have other things in your life that make you happy, whether it's your family, your friends, a hobby that has nothing to do with filmmaking, it will make the yeses you get a lot sweeter and a lot nicer because you are more fulfilled and everything else you do outside of this industry will inform you as a filmmaker. So don't give up everything to do this. So yeah, our final section is called Nugget of the Week. So me and Oz consume so much content, podcasts, films, YouTube videos, all sorts. So we like to ask our guests, what has inspired you this week? So I'm preparing for a pitch 
for something coming up. So I've been like, whenever you're preparing for a pitch, you start watching loads of stuff because you you need to kind of say it's tonally like this or whatever. So uh, what inspired me this week was watching the classic film The Firm. I don't know if you've seen it by Tom Cruise. Um, and I just yeah, think it, it years ago, yeah. I just think it's an amazing way of doing a very nuanced thriller and. I think everyone should watch it for that set up reveal, set up reveal, um, if they are interested in that type of filmmaking. So that's my nugget of the week. Go and watch The Firm if you want to be, uh, if you want to write thrillers. Love that. And how about yours? What's inspired you this week? Just the Oppenheimer soundtrack. Mm. Um, I really, really, really like it. I had it on in the background while I was doing some writing. Then I had it on in the background when I was at the gym. And then I saw, suddenly realised it was in the backdrop of every facet of my life this week. So You're feeling yeah. like coffee. Um, so yeah, you're like, like walking down the street and then the sound yeah. is happening. That's cool. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a great soundtrack. Amazing. I mean, there's so much on I it. I put it on uh, yesterday as well whilst I was doing some writing and I had to turn it off because I started getting really anxious because it was so intense. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just had like PTSD of like explosions and shit. Um, oh my God. Yeah, it's a cool film um, oh. if you've not seen it. And what about you? What was your look at the week? Well, mine is, uh, so, I mean, Oz will know this, but I am obsessed with aliens um, and have been since I was a teenager because they scare the shit out of me. And obviously this week, the week of recording, there's been the big revelations of the whistleblowers that have come out um, and testified under oath at Congress in the US saying that there's a reverse engineering program going on and it's probably the biggest news story ever, which has kind of been ignored by people. Um, so I think my, my nugget of the week is a, a documentary called The Phenomenon, which is on YouTube. Mm. Um, and it's basically like it's a documentary which gives you like a history of the UFO now called UAP topic from the Roswell crash in 1947 to present day. And it gives you a sense of the cover up that's been going on. So if you need an intro into the topic, I would say to to give that a watch. That's so Wicked. cool. I love yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so scary. But it's great. <laughs> well thank you so much Joelle I think that that's yeah, it's been great that's kind of it it's been super insightful because I've I got the scripts I got to see the breakdowns and stuff of of Dreamworld's Black so I was intrigued to kind of see how it all came mm. together and it's it's it seems to be landing in a really strong way over with with the audiences and it's it's, it's great work and it's a really important story as well because it's never been done before uh, mm, <laughs> like no. ever which so, is mad yeah 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 yeah. for what mm. and it's 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 really beautiful to see um stories being told with black characters which isn't centered around trauma mm. it's it's they're all just kind of going through life in a very sort of like beautiful way but just navigating the bullshit which comes with it right with the winds right. so um that episode five like that is what all of us have been thinking <laughs> yeah it's so honestly it's so accurate i, I, I text marcus earlier on saying that scheme bit in episode five is so accurate. It's so good that it's out there and that right. hopefully the right people will look at it and think, you know what, maybe we shouldn't fucking approach it like this. Well, let's hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So this concludes the episode. Next week, we're going to be joined by another exciting guest, I'm sure. So follow socials to find out who we'll be having on. 
So if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the outlook.com and we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large and we'll do our best to tell you. We want to ship this as a resource for you, so do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the Directors Take Podcast, and also on Twitter, which is at Directors Take. So uh, Joel, where can people find you on socials? I'm just Joel May David on Instagram. Uh, May is M-A-E. And then also follow my production company, Bluebird Pictures. We do loads of stuff um, around our film festival. We love connecting with new filmmakers. Um, But yeah, just connect with us. The team is there. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Honestly, it's been... Of course, of course. Thank you so much. And leave us a review on whichever platform you get your podcast from because it really, really does help. And I think that's it. So until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith.